I saw the events posted on a competitive platform had the same URL pattern. I started scrapping out of that and I started DMing those people saying, hey, you know what? I'm building this product. Don't want to sell anything right now. Just want your feedback. Leave your email on the learning page. We're launching soon. Then you can test it out and see what happens. And I was like the very first customer that we got. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff, don't do filler, don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS, because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Gilles Pertot of Livestorm, a meeting and webinar platform. I know what you're thinking. Another webinar SaaS? Isn't that market saturated? It is, but Livestorm is doing over 15 million in annual revenue and growing. How do they do it? That's what we break down in this episode. Let's get into it. I was doing an energy in Paris, in a company called Mencha, and doing a bunch of webinar for them, struggling with the same thing that some prospects still struggle. I was forcing down their throats, like something to install on the computer, whereas, you know, they were working on banking and insurances and that sort of thing. And those guys, they don't do stuff like that. They don't have the right to do it. So I was creating the necessary friction. I thought, you know what, let's just build something that lives in a browser that doesn't require any download and spend time on the experience surrounding video. You know, how we can make the life of someone organizing easier. That was the idea. We built this thing with my three co-founders in a couple months. And we had hundreds of people connecting. And we thought, man, we built something. Let's just roll with it and see what happens. And then you talk to the customers of your competitors to validate your ideas. Exactly. Events hosted on a competitive platform had the same URL pattern so I could locate whatever company was using them. I started scrapping out of that and I started DMing those people saying, hey, you know what? I'm building this product. Don't want to sell anything right now. Just want your feedback. Leave your email on the learning page. We're launching soon. Then you can test it out and see what happens. And I was like the very first customer that we got. What was the hardest part about Finding the first set of customers after those calls you know, on your way to 1 million in revenue. I, I didn't want it to be like a one spike. I, I, I didn't want it to be dependent on a human, on me and my efforts to uh, reach out proactively. So I made some long-term bets that paid off thinking long-term. We invested a lot in, in SEO, for example. I wrote a lot of blog posts, like once a day, going on Google ads, keywords, finding the keywords, and writing, writing like a crazy person. I did the same thing for Quora, Quora.com, the Q&A website. I went there, I saw this web conferencing topic that was empty. So I started posting like crazy and give answers to everyone asking questions. And soon enough, Quora became 10-15% traffic on, on our website. And SEO was pretty much the rest. That was the bet I made, making sure people could find this, not being dependent on me reaching out. That was really hard because it took a lot of time, but it paid off. Now 99% of what we do is actually inbound. How long did it take you to uh, reach 1 million in revenue? We started like January 2016 and we actually reached 1 million AR pretty much at the time we had a Series A. So that's in between April and June 2019. So yeah, almost two years or two years and a half. So that was a long time. Mm -hmm. But it was almost bootstrapped with no outbound, fully organic and very linear growth. But it was also healthy from a lot of perspective. So you hit 1 million revenue in 2019 and in 2020, COVID came and that had a dramatic impact on the business. That was insane. We have this, I don't know, like 2000 customer in March, 2020. And then COVID hits France, everything goes on lockdown. And between March and end of June, we acquired about like 2,500 customers. 
doubling more like 2.5 in less than three months. It was very intense on the product, of course, on the infrastructure, but also on the team because out of a sudden you had like 20x more conversations to handle from a customer support and sales perspective, right? Everyone started doing support on Intercom and answering clients on the phone. It was very intense. We were not ready and you couldn't be ready for such loads, but we made through it. During COVID, a lot of businesses got a massive boost, uh, including various virtual events platforms like Hopin. Then after COVID boom, that particular company collapsed, sold for scraps. What happened to you after the peak? went by. To answer the question, what is the positioning of Lifestorm? Essentially, we started as a webinar platform, which is a bit different. And we are still a webinar platform, a bit extended because do uh, different things here and there, but we're mostly a webinar platform. And I think the main difference between a virtual event and a webinar platform is a webinar is something recurring, something you do monthly or on a weekly basis if this is a part of your marketing strategy. Whereas a virtual event is hosted most frequent once a quarter to once a year. It is very punctual. It is an event and it is an event market. It is not recurring. That explains why valuation of those market went down and the company died because those are not SaaS. Those are not ARR. They are just one-shot payments, whereas all the meeting software category or webinar software category is recurring. So the valuation are pretty steady and you don't lose customers. It is slower, but you don't lose customers. That's the main difference. Building tools that are about an obviously recurring use case have a much better chance at winning if you want to be like a utility provider, like electricity. It's must-have. They turn it on and it works passively. Patrick Campbell, founder of ProfitWell, calls this concept anti-active usage products. Products should either be part of a workflow or completely passive going forward. Active usage will start to be deprioritized as a metric. That kind of stumbling that is useful for folks is what we kind of discovered is this anti-active usage type product, like it retains itself at a really, really high rate because people are just getting the value and they don't have to use it. And so what we kind of found this is like a little, little bonus thing on retention. When we look at churn rates across different types of products, those products that are workflow products you use every single day or mostly every single day, or those products you don't have to log into, but you still get the value. That's where the lowest churn rates are, the highest retention. Anything in the middle, it's like death. And this is why Profile Metrics ended up being free because we were just like, it's, it's terrible to build a metrics or an analytics product. It's so hard because people just don't appreciate how much work goes into it. Therefore, they don't retain at a high rate. They don't want, they're not willing to pay that much. Etc. Let's talk about the webinar category. When you guys got started, you were not the first. So how do you think about differentiation today in this webinar space? It is hard. We are in probably one of the reddest ocean you can think about. The number one thing is not even technology because that's also the thing that is difficult. Technology is not an competitive advantage anymore. So it's also reduction plus technology doesn't matter because you have all those SDKs and APIs to build video and audio and whatnot. What counts is either your velocity, that's one, your distribution, that's two, or you can count on the defensible territory you built. So basically the brand, the position and the specificity that you have on a given territory, your expertise. So for velocity, we go as fast as we can, but obviously it's also hard to compete with Zoom teams and the other guys of this world. Let's call it a tie and an ISO thing. Then you have distribution. Distribution is hard to compete with, especially with teams and Microsoft in general, because they have this huge power of distribution through the office suite. So we've chosen expertise. What does it mean for us? It means not being just a simple webinar platform. We try to emphasize our European DNA. We are built in Europe. We have expertise within the video conferencing space about 
webinar and we have a specific footprint within IT, finance, and healthcare. We focus on the mid-market plus plus. That's pretty much the differentiation that we have. It's a full parameters equation and this is how we try to differentiate ourselves. The European state piece is actually very important because as you said, there are a lot of companies collapsing and usually they die or get acquired. When they get acquired, they get acquired by US entities, which is fine, but for a lot of European companies, that's a problem. And that leaves Europe with pretty much no alternatives whatsoever against two and teams. I'm proud to be the biggest private video conferencing company not publicly listed in Europe. We are supposed to become that alternative. So that's that's our positioning. So tell me about the European advantage. Is it because of the GDPR and the, the privacy laws? Or yeah. What's going on there? You can be GDPR compliant when you're not a European, but when in whatever complex organization in Europe, you have a sovereign tendency to go for European-based solution. Typically, they will go for us. And that's something we can validate every day uh, on the field. So GDPR, IT compliance, and also security. We are the only security, you're the only private company in Europe to be on video conferencing, to be ISO 27K. And we intend to really double down on that field. Differentiation, or lack of it, is a business strategy problem, not a messaging issue. The number one source of friction I see in Winter's message test data is lack of differentiation. How is this different from those top three companies in, in the category? If you're more of the same, it's a business problem you need to solve. If you need multiple minutes to explain how you're different, the differentiation is likely too esoteric. In mature categories with a lot of competition, you need to spell it out. You need to even lead with it. The differentiation objection will inevitably come up and the way to handle it is to be proactive about it. Lifestorm has figured out that their European customer base really cares about security and privacy and is leaning into this as a reason to choose them. ISO standard, that's actually how some companies choose their vendor, ISO certified. Yes, we are certified. This is how they choose us. We try to be in the public catalog, validated by government entities and that's all the things. This is why we work with the French government. This is why we work with the European Commission. And all those logos, they give us credibility for whatever European banking, finances or healthcare need our services. You have said that you used to believe in shipping features as fast as possible, and then you changed your mind, replacing that idea with spend time to find two, three key features and build it well. This is something that all companies above a certain threshold of MRR start thinking about. When you start, you need to basically catch up with your market. So you ship as much as possible. You try to be different. You try to do things a little bit better to question the status quo. Our cadence was very fast at the beginning. Once we got caught up with the market, we started thinking about how we can do things that are different, trying to make things a little deeper. Since 2020, when we started moving up markets and non-mean markets and enterprise, we started looking into more complex features that take time. We started having legacy on the technical side, plus some stuff to think about for go-to-market, etc. It takes a little more time. And when you have a huge customer base, legacy customer base to deal with, you don't want to break stuff. You're trying to think about all the possible edge cases. It is a play of quality, of having more complex features, but it's also something you slow down because you have this huge existing thing to think about. And you don't want to break anything. You want everyone to have a really cool experience on a product. Last year, we had 60 or 70 features. Some were pretty small, but other were major. We ship every week and new updates to the platform. Uh, there is one shipping today that's being put in general availability. And the next year, so in 2024, we'll be shipping every day. Every day, something will go into production. So yes, 
we're a bit slower in conceiving the, the features, but we still have a pretty good cadence compared to some of the others. Product companies need to ship products fast. Faster always wins, but the reality on the ground is hard. I had a problem at winter not too long ago. My engineering team was not shipping. Everything took too long. The engineering team went over every deadline, sometimes by multiple weeks. I decided we need help. So I found an engineering consultant whose value prop was, I will make your team ship again. And he did. The secret sauce, a methodology called Elephant Carpaccio. Elephant is the big new feature you want to ship. A carpaccio is a thin sliced meat. So you slice each feature into a slice that could be accomplished in a day. And every day you commit to shipping this slice. Every feature goes through a slicing exercise. What could we do? What's the smallest thing we could do that we could release to the, our customers today? So not next week or next month or next year, but what can we do today? Now, my engineers don't work on a feature in a dark box for weeks. We can see every single day whether they ship something. And if there is a problem of any kind, we can catch it early in a day. Going back to differentiation at Red Ocean, how are you prioritizing what to build and how much are you thinking about your competitors when deciding those things? We have clear direction for the positioning that we have. We don't want to be too broad. We used to be very broad, capture as many market shares as possible. Now we have this very European safety first DNA that we want to concentrate on. That drives some of the decisions. So we will prioritize work on Salesforce, Marketo, Audit Trails, that sort of features, maybe some workspace management things versus going like an SM, very SMB feature. So let's call it, I don't know, PipeDrive integration. I, I love PipeDrive but maybe this is not tied with our core ACP right now. That's one way to think about it. Also, we have a uh, prioritization system in place that uses both the numbers of requests and the average MRR lost, kind of three dimension parameters. And for that, we use our product board that integrates with auto revenue stream, and we can actually attach a feature request to all those things. This is how we try to sort the feature request. So you went up market, got clarity on where you fit in the landscape. How else has your strategy, both marketing and product strategy, changed after you hit 10 million in revenue? We pretty much hit 10 million during COVID, right? 2020 was the tipping point between two, two sides. We were very bootstrapped SMB-driven, self-service-driven until 2020. Kind of a MailChimp for webinar. After that, two things happened. First, the use cases of Lifestore multiplied. So it was not just webinar marketing. We had trainings, we had education, we had a bunch of different things. So the personas kind of evolved. Maybe you think about the product in a more flexible way, trying to address nuances and not just marketing persona. That was the first thing that changed. The other thing, the use cases was not just webinar as in we wanted to bring more recurrence in a product. Our bet was to say everything will be driven towards recurrence, having more active user, more active host. Typically, virtual event was not part of the strategy because it was not recurring. So we went towards smaller groups, not meetings, not webinar, but something in between for weekly training. So that paid well. That was actually very good. It increased recurrence and uh, stickiness of the product. And from a revenue perspective, the strategy after 2020 was pretty simple. We had this huge streams of monthly customers. They just went and paid with a credit card and it went on a monthly plan. And 80% of the customer base was in that state, which means that after 2020, those guys, they could just hit a button and that's it. They could go. So we hired a sales team in 2020. They had two missions. The first one was to go 
upmarket because we wanted to have a bigger ARPA to drive more cash flow. The second thing was to take those monthly customers and turn them into one year, two years, three years contract. So after 2020 and up until now, the sales mission was to increase LTV and increase stickiness. And that's it. It's now seven years of building this business. What are business lessons you've learned that you would love to pass on to fellow B2B SaaS founders? First one is be as efficient as possible, as long as possible. When someone enters the room, they think, wow, you're doing all that with few people. I think that's a good rule of thumb. It works on your efficiency, so that's the first one. Also, think holistic. Typically, one thing that we tend to do a lot, just add tools, right? We add a lot of tools for action A, B, C, D. But at the end of the day, what everyone does goes back to one small thing that does everything because it's easier. It has a lot of advantages. I think trying to be simple, linear in terms of numbers of tools. The number of tools tells something about how your company is run. That uh, also works with the whole efficiency thing. The last thing is, I believe in self-service. If you have a way to expose your own products to new users and get some self-service traction into it, do it. Even if those guys are going to churn, even if those guys are not the most ticky users, they will drive some pipeline. They will drive some leads. It is an easy way to fill pipeline for your sales team. If you have the capacity to create some sort of free funnel or service funnel on some sort of product that sales exposes, go for it. What did Livestorm do to win? One, they invested a lot in inbound marketing. So I made some long-term bets that paid off we invested a lot in SEO, for example. I wrote a lot of blog posts, like once a day. Two, they have a clear focus for their product, differentiation, and ICP. Being just a simple webinar platform, we try to emphasize our European DNA. We focus on the mid-market plus plus. Three, they focused on the self-serve aspect of their product to drive leads, and then had the sales team focused on those users to increase revenue per account and LTV. Our bet was to say everything will be driven towards Recurrence, having more active user, more active hosts. So we went towards smaller groups for weekly training. Actually, that paid well. It increased recurrence and uh, stickiness of the product. That's how you win. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.